Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart. Since 2010, the most listened to radio show in the nonprofit sector dedicated to helping your charity succeed. It's no secret that combining online and offline techniques is the key to fundraising success, and practical nonprofit management advice is what you need. The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart is the perfect landing point to learn from top experts around the world who provide advice you can use. Ted Hart is without a doubt one of the foremost nonprofit thought leaders. Also a successful author, his books range from successful online fundraising to expert nonprofit management. Guests on the Nonprofit Coach are leaders in their field who share their insider tips and trade secrets in a conversational style both the experienced and novice will benefit from. Ted lectures around the world, but now he's here for you. From the latest in charity news, technology, fundraising, and social networking, Ted and his guests help you and your organization move to greater levels of efficiency and fundraising success. This is a live call-in show. Add your voice by calling 347-324-3080. After the show, you can find all our podcasts at tedhart.com. Click on the radio links. Don't forget to dial 347-324-3080. Now, welcome the host of The Nonprofit Coach, Ted Hart. And welcome to this latest edition of The Nonprofit Coach. Thanks for joining us today. And don't forget, if you've got Amazon Alexa, you can say, Hey, Alexa, play Nonprofit Coach on TuneIn, and you will be able to uh, listen to the most recent podcast uh, from The Nonprofit Coach. And uh, you can just say, Next, 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 and she, uh, Alexa, We'll just keep playing the nonprofit coach uh, for you right at home uh, over your uh, Amazon Alexa uh, system. Uh, today, uh, we have a very important show, The War for Fundraising Talent and How Small Shops Can Win. Uh, but first, we start with page one news. And today we're joined here with uh, Heather Hill, uh, the CFRE International Board Chair, uh, who is here to give us uh, the CFRE International Minute. Welcome back to the Nonprofit Coach, Heather Hill. Thank you so much, Ted. It is a joy to be with you today. And I have a lot of exciting news to pack into our CFRE Minute, uh, so I'll do my best to be concise and exciting. (laughs) Our biggest news is the launch of... Sure. Our biggest news is our launch of CFRE Central. It's a new free online community, and it's available for both current CFREs as well as anyone who has an in-process application through the CFRE.org site. So that features lively discussions um, such as topics about moving into an executive director role, a conversation on company employee giving programs, and we also encourage participants to start their own discussion threads and get involved in answering and, and commenting on other people's questions and discussions as well. So that's a new resource available, CFRE Central, and you can find it on CFRE.org. We're also thrilled that for the very first time, we'll be exhibiting at Case 3 in Atlanta, and that's happening next week, February 24th through 26th. So we're looking forward to connecting with fundraisers in the southeast there in Atlanta. 
also happening next week. We're exhibiting at the Fundraising Institute of Australia's annual conference in Brisbane. It's February 27th through March 1st. Uh, so we hope that those of those nonprofit folks in Australia will stop by the booth, learn more about CFRE, and how it can be a benefit to fundraising professionals in Australia. And last but certainly not least, I want to take a moment to remind everyone that April 15th is the next application deadline for the CFRE um, accreditation. So either start or complete your application at CFRE.org by April 15th. And that is the CFRE Minute. Wow, Heather, you certainly did get a lot of information in in a short uh, period of time. Sounds like a very busy time at CFRE uh, International. Uh, how are applications looking and, and how broad is uh, the certification becoming? Applications are looking very strong. We see uh, we see growth every every testing window, which is exciting. And I'm also very happy to share that we're seeing a lot of expansion globally in the market. Um, since getting ISO accreditation last year, um, I think that accreditation has helped with the recognition in countries around the world. Um, we have a number of testing centers. Pretty much anywhere you go, you can be on vacation internationally and find a testing center. So it's really helped open up um, the accreditation to fundraising professionals wherever they might be, and we hope to see that growth continue. Well, thank you so much for bringing us uh, these important updates. Uh, as our listeners know here on The Nonprofit Coach, we encourage uh, all of our listeners who qualify to sit for the CFRE exam uh, to begin today by going to CFRE.org and beginning to plan for your opportunity uh, to become certified. We do believe it's an important indication of our professionalism uh, for the nonprofit sector. Uh, and Heather Hill, CFRE International Board Chair, thank you for joining us again here on The Nonprofit Coach. Thank you, Ted. With that, we head on over to page two. Today, our page two uh, guest expert is Jason Lewis, who brings to us his new book, The War for Fundraising Talent a hopeful critique of the fundraising profession intended especially for small nonprofit organizations that find it difficult to consistently achieve their fundraising goals. Small shop organizations often experience rapid professional staff turnover and high donor attrition, which are merely side effects of what Jason believes is a much larger problem. This intersector conflict will not be won by those organizations who continue to mistakenly consider their, sarcast their sarcastic resource, uh, or scarcest, I'm sorry, scarcest, sorry about that, Jason, scarcest <laughs> resource uh, to be, I I'm being sarcastic, I think, um, their scarcest resource <laughs> to be donors uh, with dollars. Uh, Jason Lewis is a CFRE uh, and is an AFP uh, master trainer. He provides the sector with an, an often needed contrarian voice, there we go, being a little bit sarcastic, uh, willing to question deeply ingrained beliefs and the assumption of how effective fundraising really works. Uh, Jason is also host of the Fundraising Talent Podcast, and Jason and his guests often have honest conversations about it, what it means to be a fundraising professional. 
the podcast provides listeners with a, a better understanding of what it means to fill one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles. And Jason, I am so glad that you are joining us here uh, today on The Nonprofit Coach because I do believe uh, and I want to get right into your book and, and share with folks that uh, your book is available uh, over on Amazon.com. Again, that is uh, entitled uh, The War for Fundraising Talent, uh, How Small Shops Can Win. Uh, but one of the things that I want to put right on the table is uh, a concern that we have talked about many times here on The Nonprofit Coach, and that is the lack of understanding on the part of most nonprofit boards of directors of what fundraising is, how it works, and what a professional fundraiser brings to their team, uh, where most boards of directors just hope that they're some magical wizard who brings with them a bag full of money and the ability to fund all the things that the board wants money for. Is that the proper role for a professional fundraiser? Absolutely not. You, you've been around longer than I have. You know that that's uh, that many boards, um, boards, the boards and the bosses, as I oftentimes refer to it, do not have a very uh, productive understanding of how fundraising really works. And that was certainly an underlying goal with this with this particular book project, this first book project of mine, was to empower the frontline fundraiser who often finds themselves in that messy predicament of working for a board and a boss um, who really doesn't understand how all this works. And um, so, uh, Ted, I'm delighted well, to be so on the show with you today. Um, I, uh, I've been I've been watching you for uh, you've been around a lot longer than I have and. Um, I've been watching your wisdom out there for, for many years, and I believe you first got on my radar when I was a major gifts officer in Washington, and uh, that was 12 or 15 years ago, so I'm delighted to be here today. Thank you. Well, thank, thank you so much for, uh, for dating me. Uh, Sorry. <laughs> I appreciate the fact that you've, uh, that you've been uh, watching, uh, uh, watching my work. I've been impressed with your work as well. Um, so let, let's start right off with, you know, whenever there's a war, there are typically two or more sides uh, that are in opposition. So let's start off by describing, uh, you know, who are the combatants here? Where are the lines drawn in this war? Yeah, so I'm making the argument, and, and this is um, obviously in the nonprofit sector that's, uh, you know, using such a term like war um, has gotten me some pushback. I've been told, Jason, why did you choose such a title? And, um, and I, I've candidly very much said, you know, it was part of my strategy was to get something that would catch people's attention. Um, the war that I'm talking about is oftentimes assumed to be the talent war. So it's the, um, we assume, a lot of people, when they pick up the book, they think I'm talking about you know, who gets to hire Ted versus who gets to hire Jason. And what I'm actually talking about is a, is a much more deeper um, underlying uh, sort of a, an ideological war that's happening, I believe, in the nonprofit sector, and that is these two opposing mindsets, one being that in order for an organization to achieve its fundraising goals, it has to constantly pursue more donors with dollars um, and whereas you have another category of organizations that I think are, are winning and will continue to win this war, um, those organizations who arrive at the point where they realize that it's not more donors with dollars that actually helps them achieve their goals, but it's 
it's, in, it's recognizing that the donors that they have are their greatest assets and that it's their fundraising talent that will allow them to um, cultivate and set higher expectations of those donors that they already have. Um, so mm-hmm. you have, and, 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 if, and, if, and a lot of us, you and I included, have you know, started our fundraising careers in shops that didn't have a healthy understanding of how all this works. And I think it's, it is these shops that are on sort of the losing side of, of that line that we've drawn that I'm drawing in the book. And I'm trying to, my primary purpose was with the book was to get it in the hands of the frontline fundraiser who could, could better discern, okay, am I working for this shop who doesn't really understand how this works versus the shop that does? Mm-hmm. Well, and I think part of part of the issue, so let's kind of break this down a little bit. Part of the issue yep. does start with the professional fundraiser, and does the fundraiser themselves understand the appropriate role for their position within the nonprofit organization? Because I find that oftentimes um, the problem starts at the hiring of a, of a professional who they themselves don't understand the role that they can and should play within the management of that organization and or sells themselves short from day one just to get the job. Yeah, I mean, I think that's especially problematic, Ted, when you think about sort of where fundraising has come in the last, say, 30 years. When a lot of us, when I started 20 years ago in the fundraising profession, it was okay if I spent a large majority of my time doing direct mail, planning special events, a lot of the things that were usually oriented towards the the initial donor, the first-time gift, um, and were not usually assumed to be, uh, you know, generally generally we accepted that those were not the high-margin fundraising opportunities. What I think is happening now, again, and, and, and I'm speaking directly to the fundraising professional. I'm not speaking to the big shops. I'm not speaking to the associations. I'm not speaking to uh, the software companies. I'm speaking to the frontline fundraiser who now has to confront the fact that technology, um, I mean, technology and highly capable volunteers um, and and, and outsourcing options are capable of largely accomplishing what what I had to accomplish over an entire year when I first started. So using Giving Tuesday as an example, what Giving Tuesday can accomplish for a lot of organizations took me months to accomplish with the direct mail campaign when I first started. Um, and I'm saying to a lot of your frontline fundraisers, especially if you're in a small shop where they only employ one fundraiser, does your boss and your board really need to employ a full-time employee to do that initial gift work? Or could they outsource that to someone? Could they contract this? And can they leverage the capabilities of, of highly capable volunteers? And could you then become much more focused on subsequent gifts on that renewal process, which is where we know the fundraiser begins to shine, but a lot of us have not been trained in that space. I, I think we, ha- we have a history in this profession of having fundraisers very focused on what I, what I refer to as the initial gift. And I think we're moving very quickly towards a space where Small shops and large shops are going to focus their full-time employees on subsequent gifts. Um, I draw that distinction just very simply between the first gift and the and any subsequent gift. Um, mm-hmm. I, if I was a, if I was an executive director today at a you know local nonprofit organization here in my community, 
I would not have my full-time fundraiser have anything to do with the first-time gift. Mm-hmm. So if that, and I think this is very powerful advice because you're speaking directly to the management of small nonprofit organizations who are constantly struggling with, you know, limited resources. How do I fund uh, my my development operation and at the same time meet my budget? When you know, let's let's be honest, a smart organization is going to view their development operation about future and not current operations. Uh, and, and so how do you start your program? How do you get first-time donors if your professional that's on staff is focused on repeat donors and upgrade donors? Yeah, so that's, the, that's kind of that, that's that, that's that um, introspective question that I'm trying to encourage the fundraiser when they read my book to ask. Um, is my or does my organization understand that if they have me focused on that first-time gift, whatever the assumptions, whatever method we happen to use to get that first-time gift, does my employer understand that if that's the gift I'm focused on, it's not going to generate an adequate margin to justify my role on the payroll? And so I'm saying to audiences, I'll be in Toronto next week speaking to a group, and I'll be saying to them, look, if you're, if you're interviewing for a shop, that, that says new donors, new donors, new donors during the interview process, or if that's what your current boss is saying, I'm saying to them, quit, run, and hide until you find an organization that gets how fundraising really works. Um, but if you think about, again, go back, sort of just, just process, and Ted, you've been around just as long as I have, think about sort of the continuum of just sort of the, um, what I oftentimes refer to as the messy adolescence. Our profession has matured over the last, essentially over your career, has gone from its infancy to now a place where we're all wrestling with whether or not this is a legitimate professional career path. And we're having to sort of ask ourselves some tough questions that a lot of us in the field, that those of us who've been around longer than, than those of us who have not, maybe don't necessarily want to lean into. So I'm, I'm, I'm asking questions that actually the longer tenured fundraisers don't want to ask. Um, right. It's not hard for my readers. If my, if, you know, as, as this book has gotten out there, if you're a five to ten year fundraising veteran, you're perfectly fine with this book. But I got to tell you, Ted, some of the pushback I've gotten on this book is from the people who are 15, 20, 25 years in, who their whole professional identity has been tied up in new donor acquisition. Yeah. I'm saying to that yeah. fundraiser, I'm saying to that fundraiser, hey, you just signed on at a time when that was a necessary role for you and for, your, for, for where the profession was, but that's not where the profession is today. We don't have to employ you full time to do that anymore. There's more efficient ways to do that. So this is, in in a sense, what you have written here is sort of the next generation for fundraising um, at small shops is that, you know, the, the profession itself has matured, has grown, and technology now provides the opportunity for small organizations to have entry-level donors that do not require a full-time professional fundraiser uh, to be sitting behind a desk managing that program, but instead those, uh, those professional fundraisers need to today have the skill set 
to upgrade and renew donors, not necessarily get those first-time entry-level donors. Yes. Yeah, so, so uh, Ted, you know, you know fundraisers as well as I do, okay? So imagine a guy like me. So I'm 40 years old, tall, white guy. I'm a big guy. I'm standing in front of an AFP group, and a lot of the people in the room have spent their entire careers in new donor acquisition, and rightfully so. That's what their employers paid them to do. But when a guy like me, a young guy like me, gets up in front of a group like that and says, your job description, if you continue down this, if, if you're, if you're going to continue down this path, or this professional career path, your job description is going to look more and more like a major gifts officer. That's the scary part of what I'm saying is that this person who's been in direct mail or planning events and largely doing things that were relatively at arm's length with the donor is now being told by this young guy, hey, your job description, if you want to stay on the payroll, especially at a small shop, is going to look like taking people out to lunch. Mm-hmm. Well, it, yes, and, and, and let's not get confused in that some folks think just taking someone out to lunch is the same thing as major gift fundraising. Um, so sure. Yeah. You know, this, I, I once, I once had, you know, as someone on a board of directors say, well, I could be the major gift officer because I can take people to lunch. Um, but it's understanding what it takes to cultivate that relationship before you get to lunch that determines the difference between a successful major gift fundraiser and, and one that is not. But but let me let me just ask you, I mean, is is the scary part in in that, you know, I'm a development officer, I'm not a major gift officer, and if I'm more senior, I'm concerned that you're downgrading my position because I'm now not a full service strategist but I'm a specialist, or is the concern I don't have that skill set? I think it's more that you don't have that skill set. And I don't know that it's, and I actually think, so I spend the second half of my book, um, Ted, talking a lot about this concept of what is meaningful work. And what I mean by meaningful work, and there's a lot of research out there in this concept of meaningful work. Um, a lot of us, I think, come into the, to the fundraising profession and we come into the nonprofit sector seeking after meaningful work. And a lot of us came into it expecting, I think we actually expected to do more donor-facing work. I think we actually expected to be sitting across more lunch tables when we initially came into it, but that's not the way fundraising was designed. And so we essentially have evolved along with the profession and done the direct mail and done the event planning. And so we've sort of, we've gotten sort of tied up in this. I don't think there's, I think there's a lot of people out there that are perfectly fine with sitting across the table with an individual and having a meaningful conversation. But because they've gotten to this place, they're very, it's very scary. And in the second half of the book, I'm talking about what it is to sort of master the fundraising profession. And that, and that mastery that I'm talking about is the fact that, that these most meaningful gifts. So if we sort of see a continuum of gifts, we oftentimes see that initial and, and oftentimes a very trivial gift. And then we see a, a meaningful gift that oftentimes is sort of the prerequisite for the most significant gifts. Um, and I think you're seeing a, a hiring manager today who's hiring a fundraiser who's expecting them to pr- pr- focus on um, that meaningful gift. And you're not going to do that 
you're not going to be able to get that meaningful gift, whatever that, that amount happens to be, without that what I refer to as a lunch table conversation. Um, a meaningful conversation could be no different than even what you and I are doing here. A lot of people think, you know, they ask me, Jason, why do you keep referring to lunch tables and coffee shops? And it's really just the fact that at, at some point in the process, as we're building relationships with donors, the expectation of that relationship in exchange for that meaningful gift raises the expectation on what what sort of investment we're making in that relationship. Um, you and I, for example, have been connected on social media for, for quite some time, but it's only now that we've sort of taken that relationship to another level, and consequently, you and I will have different expectations of that. I think that's where we're at with fundraising is that direct mail and special events and Giving Tuesday and all those things those tend to be those low expectation sort of space. Um, and, and donors want to be, eventually, if you want their more significant gifts, you're going to have to move into a more meaningful relationship sort of zone. Right. And understanding how to get there uh, is, uh, is part of the, the question here and, and part of what you're encouraging. So, so part of the message here is preparing your career for today's philanthropy. Yeah, I, I tell a story. So um, I, I feel like I sort of went all over the place with the last, uh, um, uh, with your last question, Ted, as I'm sort of thinking back on everything I just said. But I think this is sort of pull it all together. Storytelling tends to work really well for all of us. Um, so I tell the story of what's called, one of the last chapters in the book is called A Tale of Two Ryans. And one of the Ryans, is um, he's, he's, he, t today he's yet 30 years old. He's not 30 years old today. He graduates from a local, uh, he, he graduates from Messiah, which is a local uh, faith-based school here in, in central Pennsylvania, um, goes to work for the rescue mission in Philadelphia, and then goes out to the West Coast and works for the rescue mission out there. So he's moving around like a typical uh, millennial would be, we would expect of a typical millennial. Um, but he's also finding out that his personality and what is actually highly effective fundraising eventually requires you to get out of the direct mail stream, which his employers are heavily entrenched in, and requires that you eventually start taking people out to lunch. He goes to work for the uh, large, large children's hospital there in L.A., discovers major gifts, and all the lights in his head start going off, and he starts figuring out, okay, this is who I am. And this is what I, where I can make the biggest contribution. He's now back in Philadelphia. This is, this is what I think, this is what I think uh, those of us who've been around a while need to be thinking about when it comes to the way that people are advancing in their fundraising careers. So Ryan has recently been hired at, at, at Wharton as a gift officer. He's still not 30 years old, and he's, and he's at a place in his career that a lot of us who are 10 and 20 years older than him have yet to get or have no desire to get to. But this is a young person who's figured out how fundraising really works, moved his career very quickly to that place where he understands, okay, where do I make the biggest impact for my employer? And now he's working for one of our largest shops. So every shop that's smaller than this Ivy League institution now doesn't have the advantage of Ryan. And that's, the, mm -hmm. that's sort of the crisis that I'm sort of sounding the alarm on, is there's a lot of nonprofit organizations out there that would really like to hire Ryan, 
Brian's 29 years old right now, making close to six figures. There's a lot of people who'd like to be employing him, but we can't anymore because a shop that's significantly larger than us has already got it. Right. Well, and they have the resources to have, um, you know, a, a very large stable of, of whether it's major gift officers or development officers, um, and that's that's how they continue to feed their very strong fundraising efforts. And and I think part of the, you know, what's missing here in in the dialogue in the nonprofit sector is an understanding of. What did it take for them to get there? I mean, these organizations didn't start with, you know, having very powerful fundraising um, apparatus in place. They learned over time and have honed that skill, whereas I think most small nonprofits, and and arguably because they don't have the budget uh, to have trial and error or, you know, sort of learn on the job, um, a lot of nonprofit organizations don't take the time to build the talent um, and to build that kind of loyalty. Uh, and instead, you know, to be honest, a lot of smaller nonprofits sort of beat up their on their uh, their fundraising development officers to the point where you know a year or two years in, where they're very um, uh, skilled and able to find another job, uh, their their folks are looking for another job because they don't find it. Uh, particularly enjoyable to work for the organization that had hired them and ended up putting all the investment into them. Yeah, and see, that, that organization that you just described, Ted, is the organization I'm most fearful for because I don't think that the advantages that a, a lot, I don't think the advantages are necessarily for a large Ivy League institution where Ryan's working, I don't think all the advantages are necessarily just size and affluence of the constituency. It's actually a better understanding of how this all works. So we all know, as you've just acknowledged, we all know that at some point somebody gave an initial gift to that institution, but that institution knows we're not going to focus Ryan's time on that initial gift we're going to focus his time on that subsequent gift. And so I like to think that there's smaller shops that, are, that can have the same advantage of understanding that I'm not going to employ somebody to chase after a $100 or $500 donation. I'm going to employ somebody to chase after much more significant gifts. But that's going to require that I employ somebody who understands that getting to 1000 or getting to $5,000 or wherever that donor happens to to be willing to go is going to require more meaningful engagement. That's not the notion that most of us who came into fundraising, the large majority of us, again, going back to that AFP audience that I'm oftentimes talking to, that's just not where a lot of us came into the field thinking that's where we'd have to be um, going when we, uh, when we started. Right. And, and so, so a lot of the maybe mid-career or more seasoned uh, uh, professionals now feel sort of stuck in that they are recognizing that the market has moved and changed, uh, but they haven't. Is that part of the issue here? Yeah, and 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 and, um, and Ted, you've written some books about the 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 way that a lot of these initial gifts get secured and how we can do social media and online giving and stuff. Um, and, and, and the, thing that, the thing that frustrates me for these people, for these individuals who, like, like you refer to them as mid-career people, they tend to be the people that are sort of fascinated with whatever is the new, whatever the new idea 
to, to, to capture that, that first time gift. And, and so they're, they're constantly sort of fast. And I, I saw this play out again at my local AFP chapter, you know, we'll, we'll bring in these folks who've got the latest sort of gadget or gizmo that secures that initial gift. And these, these tools work. There's nothing, I'm not questioning the validity and the usefulness of anything that secures that initial gift. But the question, the question that these fundraisers, these mid-career fundraisers don't seem to be asking or sort of recognizing is, is that these initial gift strategies are designed for volume and efficiency. They're designed to accumulate the first gift and do it at the lowest cost. And if you think that your job description and your salary are going to fit into a strategy that is based on volume and efficiency, you're going to lose. Eventually, it's not going to be any more about them not appreciating you and not willing to pay you enough, but they're just going to unplug you from the system and they're going to contract with whoever that company is that, that fascinated you in that AFP session with their, you know, gadget or gizmo that secures that initial gift. Yes, I think it's a very scary place. Anybody who's mid-career who's listening to me and sort of, you know, and I'm not talking about anything that's not being talked about in other industries, you know, the way, the way that technology is sort of fitting into our paradigms, um, there, there's a guy, there's a book I read a number of years ago, Ted, that talks about the idea of not, not positioning ourselves to compete with technology, but to figure out how we can be complementary with technology. And I think you've got an entire generation of what we're referring to as mid-career fundraisers who are essentially, and, and not even knowing that this is what they're doing, but they're essentially competing and at odds with the technology that they're fascinated with. And they need to learn how to become more complementary. And to be more complementary is gonna mean that they're gonna ultimately be more focused on that subsequent gift. And they're gonna ultimately, my guess is they're gonna oftentimes end up more at the lunch table than behind a desk, because that's what their boss, if their boss is listening to a guy like me, that's what their boards and their bosses are going to expect of them. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's about setting a realistic expectation and aligning your skill set to a changing uh, marketplace. Uh, we're going to take a, a, a quick break, um, uh, Jason, and when we come back, there, there's a, a, a quote that is a, a, an endorsement of your book uh, by Dr. Beth Breeze um, at the University of Kent. Uh, where she says this book is important reading for those who don't understand fundraising and is essential reading for those who think they do. And I want to uh, explore that think they do uh, with you um, as soon as uh, we come back uh, from this very quick break. Life gets busy. Wouldn't it be nice to have a central place where you could save what's on your mind? With Google Keep, you can stay on top of your world by quickly and easily organizing everything you want to remember. No matter where you are, finalize door list for Thursday's gig. So when you find inspiration, you can file away your ideas. And Google Keep stores them safely across all your devices. And when the time comes, You'll have everything covered. Save what's on your mind. Google Keep. 
Remember, our podcasts and archives are always available 24 hours a day at tedhart.com. Click on radio links. If you're listening live today, the phone lines are open. Call in and ask a question by dialing 347-324-3080. Now, back to the nonprofit coach with Ted Hart. And we're back here live with Jason Lewis, uh, who is the author of the new book, The War for Fundraising Talent. Uh, before we went on uh, the break, Jason, I, I shared with our listeners uh, this quote from Dr. Beth Breeze, and I just found it very interesting that she says, uh, you know, certainly, and you've already put out there that this book is for those who maybe don't really understand fundraising, or more importantly, don't understand what they're hiring when they hire a professional fundraiser, uh, but I found it very interesting that she said, uh, went on to say that this is essential reading for those who think they do understand fundraising. Uh, what what is she referring to? Yeah, so uh, my my friends in the United Kingdom, um, of which uh, Beth is certainly probably one of my first, and and she has been very generous to um, she's she's had some of her graduate students reading the book, and she certainly provided me with that um, that very powerful endorsement that I have I have used on a number of occasions. Um, so our friends in the United Kingdom are essentially sort of in many ways following the um, what I what I refer to in the book and others have as well the sort of the American doctrine of fundraising. We're assumed here in the U.S. as sort of being the the people who have figured out and mastered what fundraising is, and and I sort of incorporate that that notion into my book and say that some of that. Um, some of that assumption that we've got it all together over here needs to take into consideration that our profession is still in the midst of its messy adolescence. Um, and Beth has certainly read the book and, and, and realized that I am offering a critique of a profession that finds itself in the midst of this messy adolescence. Um, what, what Beth is what, what, what Beth is sort of getting at there is, is exactly what we were talking about before we went on the break. And it's the idea that it's actually these mid-career folks that have in some ways dug, dug in their heels and said, this is the way that fundraising is going to work. And if they don't start to sort of step back and be a little more introspective, they're going to find that fundraising, as it continues to mature, may get past them. And in these later, these the, 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 the sort of the last, say the last, 10 years of their career may find it difficult to find a lot of joy and pleasure in the type of work that they can get employed to do because uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, we don't have to go down that path too far. I don't want to pick on our, right. You know, right. There's, a, there's a lot of people who very admirably um, have sort of championed the profession to where it's at today. But I don't know that those same people are willing to say, Hey, when we're in the midst of a messy adolescence, you know, Ted, you and I have both, you've got, you've got two, two children and I've got four children and we've both raised teenagers. And when someone's in their adolescence, one of the things that we know is sometimes they really surprise us. We think they're brilliant. My 16 year old son, he'll say things and I'm like, wow, you need to be in graduate school. And, you know, we're, we're very surprised at, at how, how extraordinary they might be. But then there's other times when my son is behaving like his 10-year-old sister, and I wish he would just grow up. And I think that's where, I think like my 16-year-old son, that's where fundraising finds itself. And that's what I think that, that Beth is referring to is, 
is that those of us who have been in the field for a while maybe need to step back, ask ourselves some hard questions, um, and, and, and contemplate whether or not what we're out there advocating for, especially those like you and I who oftentimes are given the, the platform and, and given the, the privilege of, of speaking from the front, um, we need to be really careful what we're advocating for. Mm-hmm. One of the, um, the concepts that we've discussed often on this show, and <laughs> many times when uh, Kay Sprinkle Grace uh, is is a guest on this show. We'll we'll talk about the difference between um, you know what what we refer to as sort of white glove fundraisers, um, those who are near the fundraising, look good, raise a lot of money, but really couldn't tell you how to do it, um, and those who actually can roll up their sleeves and tell you how to run a very strong uh, program. Help me understand where where sort of that. Um, that concept fits here. Is that part of what we're talking about here? Is sort of the 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 uh, those that that are sort of nearby very strong fundraising programs, but actually don't know how to run them. Um. So I referred to uh, to Ted in my in my research for the book. One of the things that I discovered was some research that was done by a. Um, by actually a woman who's actually teaching in the health administration department in Auburn. Um, And she did her dissertation on where she asked the question, what does a mature fundraising operation look like? So she was essentially um, asking the question that you're sort of asking, um, do those of us who sort of know how to sort of get in the weeds and figure out how these things mature, what do they actually look like? And one of the things that she zeroed in on, she identified three clusters of, uh, she was actually looking at hospital or, you know, hospitals, healthcare organizations. She looked at 400 hospitals and she identified the most mature fundraising operations, 40% of their revenue was tied to a multi-year pledge. 40% of their revenue was tied to a multi-year pledge. Whereas the least mature fundraising operations you know, upwards of 90% of their revenue was tied to one-time gifts. You don't have to be an Ivy League institution to have the benefit of multi-year pledges. You just have to have a culture, a fundraising operation, and the expectation that when your development officer does his or her job, that A, they start at the lunch table not planning the event, they're focused on subsequent gifts, and at some point in the process, they solicit not a one-time gift but a multi-year pledge. I don't have to be a big, robust, you know, Harvard University in order to have the advantage of a multi-year pledge. That's what I think. I think that's sort of answering your question. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- I think it. I think it, it speaks to you know, uh, part of the, the issue here uh, for, for smaller nonprofit organizations is exactly what, who have you hired and why have you hired them. Um, but back to the main topic here of the war uh, that, that is raging uh, for fundraising <laughs> talent, um, it, it is 
sort of a foregone conclusion that larger organizations are making more of an investment in their their development operations because they see the long-term and short-term payoff. What is the answer for small shops that feel that they can't compete on salary? Are there other um, benefits or other um, avenues that they need to be able to speak to to get to those those early career development professionals with true promise uh, before they they move into perhaps larger institutions as you've already pointed out they then sort of are no longer available. So Ted, most of my career has been most of my career has been spent, with the exception of my time in Washington as a major gifts officer, where I think I really got my head wrapped around how all this works, um, at a large health charity there in D.C. Um, most of my time has been spent in smaller faith-based parachurch-type organizations. So that's the small. That's actually the small shops I was writing to. But interestingly, to to speak to your question, the odd. The book's been out there almost a year now, and the readers who are picking up the book and the people who are reaching out to me and saying, hey, Jason, I want to talk about this, the people who've who've, uh, enlisted me to come talk to their boards are actually not the small parachurch organizations that I was writing to, but it's actually what I'm starting to refer to as sort of the smaller regional higher education. So these are the institutions that are competing for talent They've gotten beyond the, 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 the new acquisition mindset. So they're, they're beyond the idea that new donors with new dollars is always the way to accomplish their goal. But they're the ones that are really competing for talent with these bigger institutions. So if you look at um, – I, I could probably name a, a dozen or so organizations that I've gotten to know. They're all relatively what we would, might would call mid-sized institutions of higher learning and they've all got a really big shop, either a state or private university, probably within 100 miles. And these are the institutions that are really competing for that same. They're the ones who, as soon as they're able to identify a Ryan that I describe in my book, that Ryan tends to end up being poached by that bigger institution. And I think that's where, I think that that, that is certainly the message I was trying to get to to these much more smaller shops, the local rescue missions, the camp ministries, the private schools that I I have been familiar with throughout my career. I wanted them to know and understand, look, if you don't learn how to hire the right people, put them in the right role, orient them towards the right work, they're going to end up somewhere else, um, Mm -hmm. and you're not going to win this war. It's just not going to be right. But but I think I think a lot of uh, I mean it, clearly a lot of these smaller organizations are hiring. Um, I think the retention becomes a bigger issue in terms of understanding well what is the proper role for this person and and how do we show value uh, when you know arguably a lot of boards of directors or as you say boards and bosses sort of approach this as okay job number one is to pay for your own salary. And, and job number two is to fundraise to our our budget deficit. Yeah. And you know, and, um, and therein lies the problem for a lot of nonprofit organizations because the honest answer is that's what they need. The wrong answer is that's what they should do. You know, um, you asked me about Beth Breeze's quote. Um, it has been uh, – so the popularity of the book has picked up in Canada and in the, U- the U.K. Um, we were talking about that a few minutes ago. Um, 
if you think about the, the fundraising professional who's sitting in a small shop today listening to this conversation, if they're unwilling to this is what a, this is what several of my I've, I've had several podcast guests on my podcast talk to me about their response to the book. And one of the observations that a, a woman made who's been in the field as long as you and I have, she said, if these fundraisers don't start to realize that they're just going to be out of a job if they stay in new donor acquisition, because all of these platforms are creating the means to secure all these gifts. Um, and it, it, it was a much more alarming sort of startling sort of statement that this woman made um, that, that you've, you've got people out there, you've got people that you and I care about, there are peers, there are colleagues, they've, they've been in this work for so long, but technology is going to get in their way and it's going to take their job from them and they've got to learn new skills and they've got to learn new skills that they have largely attributed to other, other professional peers in this work. That's what, you know, that's what frightens me the most. And I'm trying to be out there, you know, being the most pot, you know, without being this overbearing, very bald guy who says tough stuff. <laughs> right, right. But I, but I, but I think, you know, I, I, I guess, you know, as as uh, we we sort of start winding down here on 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 the show, we've covered so much territory. But what I want to yeah. do is sort of unpack this uh, war for fundraising talent for our listeners. In that the the war is actually um, a a a war that, as you said earlier, is sort of being waged in many different industries, um, and will continue to intensify uh, over the coming decade. Uh, and that is um, the proper role for professionals as it relates to the proper role of technology, um, and when it relates to something as very personal as philanthropy, when it it's something as 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 very personal as the success of nonprofit organizations that people care very much about. Limited resources require boards and bosses to understand that while you can today still have someone who is focused essentially on the annual fund, what you really need is to understand that the limited resources that you have need to build on the technology and not look to supplant the technology success for the organization. And that it's only until you have that that capacity to upgrade, to renew, to build upon the success that technology can arguably bring in on the entry level that you're actually going to have a fighting chance to succeed against those organizations that will always be able to afford more pay and more staff. Yeah, I mean, the thing that we haven't talked about, which is, which is a concept that I introduce very early in the book in Chapter 2, um, I provide a very different critique on the Olive, Cook, um, the Olive Cook tragedy that happened in the United Kingdom. There again, one of the reasons why people in the United Kingdom have, have begun reading the book, um, and, and again, why Beth Brees, for example, endorsed it, um, is because our unwillingness to sort of take what I'm saying and I'm, not, I'm certainly not the only one saying it, our unwillingness to sort of contemplate what is being said and the changes that are happening in our culture and in our, the way that work gets done um, eventually evolves into what I refer to as arm's length fundraising, which is essentially mm-hmm. um, a, 
an, an organizational addiction. Um, and so your patterns of behavior within the organization start to verge on the same sort of behavior patterns that an, uh, you, we would expect of an addict who doesn't want to relinquish um, his, his or her addiction to whatever his um, um, source of pleasure or whatever that happens to be. Um, and so I think we've got, and again, this gets back to sort of this messy adolescence and everything. Um, I, I, I think if we don't, you've got organizations out there that are digging in their heels um, in how they employ fundraisers, how they go about fundraising, who they expect to, to secure what gifts, and we don't want to be running around with a bunch of behavior that looks like addiction. Um, it, when I do a seminar, Ted, so when I'm standing up in front of a group, I like to, I like to sort of guide my group to the point where it's actually somebody in the audience who actually owns the word addiction before I do. Um, I use a visual <laughs> diagram that sort of gets them there. It's really hard. Again, when well, what is what is the like addiction? Saying, is the addiction is the addiction to uh, donor dollars? Is the addiction? It's a it's an addiction to what I call trivial gifts. So it's it's you, the fundraiser, or you, the organization, who are latching on to that initial gift and saying, this is where I'm going to create value. Um, and so we, we've got an organization going back to the, to the, to the, to the losing side, side of this war. If you're convinced that the constant accumulation of new donors, um, who oftentimes are giving the smallest and sometimes very trivial gifts, and you're going to attach your professional identity to this particular um, part of the process, you're going to start behaving like you've got an addiction, whether it's at the organizational level, um, and you're going to experience the same types of highs and lows that an addict would experience. So one of the reasons we feel really great at a special event is because we get this really great shot of, you know, money comes in. Similarly, we have the same sort of boost of enthusiasm and confidence when we, when we do Giving Tuesday, but two or three days later when that sort of boost sort of wears off, we realize, okay, we're going to have to start this whole process again. Um, what we need to be doing in a healthy fundraising operation, what we need to be doing on Giving Tuesday is not, not adding people to that cycle, but moving people out of that cycle. Um, so I did a seminar the day after uh, Network for Good had me on the day after Giving Tuesday, and I said, your goal next year for Giving Tuesday shouldn't be to raise more money. And it shouldn't be to have more donors in that Giving Tuesday pool, but it should be to move donors out of that pool to more meaningful levels of support. Mm-hmm. And it's that's the stuff. challenge. Yeah. And that's and, and that's <laughs> yeah. and that's where um, the the fundraising the war for fundraising talent brings us um, is you know the difference between those who understand that concept and are able to survive and thrive. In, in that environment, and those who are sort of stuck in the cycle of, of uh, I, I guess if I'm understanding you, is sort of the, the, the cycle of annual giving mechanisms as opposed to relationship-based fundraising. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like your local, uh, it, it, it's really, no, uh, you know, one of the things I point out in the book and one of the things I said earlier, this whole notion of volume and efficiency. So your local Starbucks knows that it can only maintain a certain level of volume and efficiency with that first cup of coffee. 
and, and it can only handle so much volume of customers. And what we've done in the nonprofit sector is we don't think that there should be a cap or a lid on volume. And so we just, we just constantly accumulate these initial donors with these relatively trivial gifts, never at the point where we say, okay, we've got to convert these customers or, or donors to more meaningful levels of support. If that's all Starbucks did, if Starbucks only sold the first cup of coffee to, uh, to, to brand new customers every time, and they kept increasing that volume sort of endlessly, they'd go out of business. The way that any business, any enterprise thrives is by having customers come back and not have to invest at the same levels in order to, uh, in order to secure those subsequent transactions. Right, right. And I, and I think that's the, the challenge, again, is, you know, how do you break out of that, that cycle when that is um, how you're budgeting? So, you know, you're budgeting a certain amount from direct mail, from your special events, uh, from all of what, what you might refer to as sort of the trivial giving, uh, whereas the hard work, the relationship building work, the, the larger gift work, uh, you might not even have the capacity to uh, to get to, and and I think your your point is is that you're actually missing the point. Yeah, so I know you've got to wrap this up, but my my approach, Ted, to how do we break this cycle? Um, I very deliberately. People said to me when they first read the book, they said, "How do we get this in the hands of the boards and the bosses? How do we get this in the hands yeah. of AFP? How do we get this?" And I have said to many people, "I'm taking a grassroots approach." I, I, I self-published this book. I got it out there as quickly as I could. Um, I'm, I gave it away. We gave away close to 500 copies at AFP's conference last year. Um, I've yet to make any real money off of this other than some occasional speaking engagements. But my approach is very grassroots because in order to break that cycle, Ted, I don't think it's going to be with the software companies. I don't think it's the big associations. I don't think it's the... Uh, the larger enterprises that are going to help us break this cycle. I think it's raising up a generation, see they mid-career or younger, raising up a generation who really understands how all this works, um, and it's going to start in places like I'm in Toronto next week. I cap out my seminars at 40 people. I want 40 people in the room that can have a meaningful engagement with me, make a meaningful connection, and really get their heads wrapped around what I'm saying. You can't do that with large numbers. Um, and so I'm taking that same, that same grassroots approach that we in the nonprofit sector believe in is the same approach I'm trying to take with this book. Yeah. Well, good luck with getting the, the word out there. You mentioned AFP before, and I said, I, you know, I'm just sitting here thinking, you know, you, you, you cannot go to an AFP local or international conference and get this message because um, it is still focused on the how to do annual giving, how to do special events, yeah. um, and doesn't, it doesn't draw the linkage between the importance for relationship uh, fundraising. And I think that's your message here. Small nonprofit organizations need to listen if they want to be able to uh, succeed in this new economy. As we wrap up here, can you just make sure that my audience uh, knows how to reach you? Yeah, Ted, thank you. Thank you again for having me on the show. You, you've affirmed much of what I've said today, and that's very encouraging. Um, uh, yeah, so I can be found on uh, lewisfundraising.com, lewisfundraising.com. 
and um, and I'm very easy to find on LinkedIn. I've got a very large um, network on LinkedIn. That's where most people follow me, and I'm usually posting at least every other day or so. Um, my podcast is also um, on on my website as well, and my podcast, the Fundraising sure. Talent Podcast, is also available on iTunes. Terrific, terrific. Uh, yeah. Well, Jason Lewis, thank you so much for being our guest here today on the Nonprofit Coach. Thank you. You've been listening to the Nonprofit Coach Radio Show with Ted Hart. Tell all your friends to check out our production schedule and download our iPod and iPad friendly podcast at tedhart.com. Thanks for listening to the Nonprofit Coach.